0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having an amazing day so far. I want to start this episode by just saying thank you. I asked you guys at the end of the last episode to share this podcast with your friends, get them to listen to it and subscribe to the feed. And virtually overnight, we added thousands of new listeners and subscribers to the podcast feed. So thank you so much. We were actually even able to crack the top 25 to 50 sports podcast chart in the United States. So thanks again, and continue to share this podcast with your friends if you're enjoying it. Help me help you by growing this show. But more importantly, I have a special episode for you guys today. I'm going to start by talking about the business behind Conor McGregor, a little bit about his story and his rise to fame, but then some of the deals that he's done to become one of the highest paid athletes of all time. And then secondly, we'll transition into an exclusive interview that I've recorded with Audi Attar. Now, Audi is the co-founder and president of Paradigm Sports Management, He has worked with Conor McGregor in a management capacity for over a decade now. He's been his business partner and co-founder on a lot of different businesses, and we break down all of the strategy behind these deals that they've been doing. So I think you guys will really enjoy it, and let's get right into it. All right, everyone. So I think the most logical place to start with this podcast is talking about the UFC specifically, right? right. The Ultimate Fighting Championship is one of the most unique and complex case studies in sports today. On one hand, the UFC is one of the world's fastest growing sports. They were acquired for $4 billion by Endeavor in 2016, and they're now valued at $12.1 billion. So obviously the business has grown a lot. They also have a $1.5 billion broadcasting deal with ESPN, and the company brought in nearly $400 million in profit last year alone. Now, that's more than every other promoter, Bellator, PFL, Matchroom, et cetera, combined. John Nash of Bloody Elbow, he wrote on his Substack earlier this month. He said, in other words, for every dollar the UFC sees in revenue, roughly one third of it will end up as profit. Again, it's absolutely tremendous growth from the UFC. They're making more money than ever doing $1.14 billion record revenue last year and they brought in a record $387 million in net income or profit. Now, look, not everyone at the UFC is benefiting nearly as much as Dana White and its owners. I don't think this is necessarily a surprise. Take the fighters, for example. Despite the UFC's annual revenue increasing from $1 billion in 2021 to a record $1.13 billion in 2022, the percentage of revenue that the UFC paid to its fighters decreased year over year, from $178 million in 2021 to $146 million in 2022. So again, revenue increased from roughly a million to 1.3, 1.4 million, or 1.2 million, sorry. And the share that they paid fighters decreased by 30 million, from $178 million to $146 million. Now, this means that the UFC is paying out just 13% of its overall annual revenue to fighters. And that also means that they significantly trail every other major U.S. professional sports league. Look, the obvious thing here is that the major sports leagues in the United States all have unions, MLB, NBA, NHL, NFL, et cetera. And all of those leagues, depending on how you count it, get a share of the overall revenue of the league. They split it with the owners. And those shares go anywhere between 48% for the NFL to 54% for MLB, right? So it's, well, give or take 50% for all of the major four sports leagues in the United States. The UFC does not have a union. They're a publicly traded company. They've been bought and acquired several times at this point, and they pay out 13% of their revenue to fighters. So again, MLB, NBA, NHL, NFL, they're all between 48 and 54% revenue share with the owners. The UFC is the complete opposite. Just 13% of the revenue that they got last year was shared with the fighters. Now I say all this to lead into the Conor McGregor example for one reason. Conor McGregor is an anomaly. He has broken the rules. He is the only UFC fighter, MMA fighter to be on the top 50 highest paid athletes of all time. He has done it in a very unique way. He has built systems around him that can complement what he's doing in the ring and his fame to get him to make more money outside of it. So I want to run through it. And again, the most logical place to start here is with his story. It's a Hollywood movie at this point. You guys have probably already heard it. A 12-year-old boy from Crumlin, Ireland, starts boxing after getting bullied at school. He eventually discovers MMA, becoming the UFC's first two-division champ. But the real story is a little bit more complex than that. For example, Conor McGregor needed to start making money at the age of 17. He had been training in MMA on and off for four, five, six years at this point. But at 17, he's not going to college. He needs to start making money. He needs to contribute to the household. So he settles for a job as a plumber. He says that he would wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, walk a few miles to the motorway, get picked up by a guy that he didn't even know that would take him to the work site, literally drive him there. And then he would spend 12 straight hours as an apprentice fixing toilets. And of course, he hated it. But not for the reasons you might think. He doesn't say he hated it because it was backbreaking work or because the pay was low. He says he literally hated it because it limited the amount of time that he was able to dedicate to training right? So he wanted to be a world champion in the UFC, but he needed to go make money. So he signs up for this job as a plumber, hates it, can't train, his energy's low, et cetera, et cetera. So what does he do? He quits, obviously, right? I think he even spent maybe a couple months, but that was it on the job as a plumber. He eventually quits, despite the fact that he was thousands of dollars in debt and living at home with his parents. So he decides to quit regardless anyways, and his girlfriend, Dee, starts supporting the family. She doesn't have like this you know, huge job either, right? So they're living on a, on a budget at home with his parents and uh, she decides to start working and supporting the family. McGregor at this point is collecting welfare checks and he's earning pennies on the dollar to continue to compete. There's this quote from John Cavanaugh, who is McGregor's coach. He's been with him the entire time. And he says, it wasn't easy. Conor was on the dole, earning 100 pounds a fight and training at the height of the winter in a cold gym. Now, I don't care how passionate you are, But there are always going to be periods where you think, fuck this. What am I doing here? Right? I think anyone would imagine that at some point where you're barely making any money, your family's probably yelling at you all the time, telling you to go get a job, et cetera, et cetera. But Connor stuck with it, and he got his shot. He ends up signing a deal with the UFC after five years on the regional circuit in Ireland and England. So he pays his dues. He gets a shot at the UFC. He ends up earning $16,000 for his first fight. It was $8,000 to show, $8,000 to win. He wins. He gets sixteen dollars but he also got a $60,000 bonus for winning knockout of the night. There's that famous scene, obviously, where he's in the ring and he yells, 60 G's, baby, yelling at Dana White. So he ends up earning more in one night, $76,000, than the previous five years combined, where he earned about $10,000 fighting. So again, five years before his UFC debut, he claims to have earned about $10,000 in fighting. And now he makes $76,000 in one night. He said after the press conference, in the press conference after the fight, this is the best moment of my career so far. I didn't have money before this. I was collecting 188 euro a week off social welfare. And now here I am with 60G bonus and then my own pay. There's this funny story in the documentary, uh, Notorious, which came out on, I think it was Netflix years and years and years ago. And McGregor, I think what he actually did was buy a Range Rover for either his mom or his girlfriend at the time with that money, which is just absolutely hilarious. This is a guy who's been breaking his back for years, trying to get a chance. He's in debt. He's collecting welfare checks. And then next thing you know, he literally gets, I guess, 76K in one night and he goes and buys a Range Rover. Absolutely ridiculous and hilarious to some degree looking back now, probably not the best financial decision, but it seems to be working out okay for him because the rest is history. McGregor ends up winning nine of his first 10 fights. He literally broke onto the scene. Anyone that watches MMA, anyone that follows MMA, anyone that's interested in him as an athlete knows he dominated early on in his career. He earns more than $1 million across his 10 fights in compensation. He then becomes the first UFC fighter to hold championship belts in two different weight classes at the same time. And he ends 2017 with a boxing match against Floyd Mayweather that generated $600 million in revenue. I don't know if it's the biggest of all time, but it's got to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest boxing match from a compensation standpoint that we've ever seen. It was absolutely huge. Now, look, looking back, did he stand that much of a chance? Probably not. It looked like Floyd was toying with him in there, but two big personalities, two people that can talk, crossing over in different sports. It was the first of its kind. This was before the YouTube stuff. This was before Jake Paul. This was before all of that. And Conor lit it up. He's an entertainer. He got the deal done with Floyd Mayweather. The UFC agreed to it because from a business standpoint, it makes sense. And he made a bunch of money. So again, look, Conor McGregor's MMA career hasn't been perfect. I don't want to act like it has. He was submitted by Habib, who's 29 and 0 and retired at UFC 229. He lost two consecutive fights to Dustin Poirier at UFC 257 and 264. And he has only won one UFC fight since November 2016. One fight since 2016, right? He won a fight earlier in 2016, but called 2017 and onward. So we're now talking six years. He's won one UFC fight. And of course, there have been problems outside of the octagon too. I don't want to brush over this and act like it's not a big deal. There's been multiple arrests. There's been lawsuits, all this kind of stuff, right? He punched a guy in the bar. He was charged with, I think it was three counts of felony assault after throwing what accounted to like a steel dolly through the window of a bus carrying Habib and several other UFC fighters and staff members at an event. I think it was at the Barclays Center in New York. But look, if, you, if you're able to put these antics aside and you're saying, okay, you know, whatever, the legal stuff is its own thing, the most impressive part about Conor McGregor's career isn't what he did in the ring. It's what he did outside of the ring, specifically from a business perspective. He's a unique personality. I think we all get that by now. He has MMA success in the UFC, and he has this, this big, bold, audacious personality that's loud. He doesn't care. He wants to make a scene that has helped him build a massive, massive following. He has, I think it's over 55 million followers if you combine Instagram and Twitter together, 45 million on Instagram, about 10 million on Twitter. And he has earned millions of dollars in sponsorship deals. He's worked with companies like DraftKings, Rolls-Royce, Reebok, Beast by Dre, Burger King, and Monster Energy. But here's the important part. Rather than just solely collecting checks in exchange for the promotion products, McGregor has built a system around himself to maximize his influence from a financial perspective. And I think the most obvious point is Proper 12, the most obvious example. So for those that don't know, Conor McGregor was actually approached before a fight in 2016 to get a sponsorship deal done with a whiskey company. They haven't said who it was, but essentially some whiskey company came up to him and wanted to pay him to do a sponsorship deal with him, whether it was to wear it you know, outside of the ring, promote it in press conferences, do commercials, social media posts, whatever it was. They wanted to sign a sponsorship deal with Conor. Conor and his manager, Tar. Instead, decide, hey, screw the cash-based compensation deal. We don't want to do that. You have this huge audience. The product is super organic to you, right? You drink whiskey after fights every single time. You're constantly you know, out at bars in, in Ireland and other places drinking it. It's who you are. Let's team up with a world-class entrepreneur. And the person that they went out and reached out to was Ken Austin. For those that don't know Ken Austin... He is a legend in the spirits business. He was the founder of Avion Tequila and he does Terramana Tequila with The Rock. He's done a bunch of other ones too. So it's like, hey, look, if you have an audience and you want to work with an entrepreneur who knows how to get it done, you go to Ken Austin. So they go to Ken Austin. I think the rumor is that Ken Austin didn't actually want to do it at first. They eventually convinced him that they should do it and they launched Proper 12 Whiskey. So if you zoom out for a second, you just look at what happened here. He was offered a cash-based sponsorship deal for a whiskey company. He said, screw that. I don't want to do that. We're going to start our own and we're going to own a meaningful share of this business. I think him and Audi, Audi owned 51% of the business when it ended up selling. So again, he has started and founded a bunch of different businesses. Proper 12 is the most obvious example, but he has McGregor Fast. He has Title Sport, which is in CVS and Walgreens all throughout the country. He has August McGregor, which is a clothing company that he founded in 2018. So every time you see him at these press conferences and you're like, damn, that's a nice suit he's been wearing. That's nice clothes he's been wearing. It's all his clothes, right? So he's just using this as a life cycle to promote his own products and businesses. And again, instead of getting cash in these deals, He's partnering with entrepreneurs to build businesses where he has a large share of enterprise value, right? He has huge amounts of upside. So he's got the three or four businesses I just listed. He also bought the Black Forge Inn in 2019, and he's starting an Irish stout business, a beer business, a forged Irish stout. He's currently selling it at the bar that he owns, and it's going worldwide, launching in 2023. So later this year, it will be available worldwide. He's looking to do the exact same thing that he did with proper 12 Irish whiskey with the forged Irish stout now. And look, this is a guy that I wouldn't bet against. I think he obviously is just different. Like you'll hear in the interview with Audi later on. He's like, I just knew Connor was different, right? He had the it factor. He had the entertainment factor. He could command attention from people. He was going to be able to do this for a long time. And the part that's most interesting to me is like, we can look at the money, right? Let, let, let's talk about the money for a second. He's ranked on the Forbes highest paid athletes list since 2016. He's made anywhere between 22 to 180 million dollars a year. And in 2021, when he made 180 million dollars, he was literally the highest paid athlete in the world. Highest paid, highest paid, higher than Cristiano Ronaldo, higher than Lionel Messi, higher than, you know, anyone, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Floyd Mayweather, Roger Federer, Phil Mickelson, it don't matter, David Beckham, anyone, literally, he was the highest paid athlete in the world that year, 180 million dollars. Obviously, most of that was because of the proper 12 Irish whiskey sale. They sold 51% of the business to their partner at the time, Proximo Spirits, for an estimated $600 million. So he is also, if you zoom out and you look at his total career, he's the 33rd highest paid athlete of all time, according to Sportico. He's made $615 million when you adjust for inflation and $530 million when you do not adjust for inflation. And he is the only MMA fighter, the only one. The only MMA fighter in the world in history to be on the highest paid athlete of all time list. I think it goes up to 50 and he's number 33. And to give you context on where 33 sits, he is higher than Magic Johnson, Kevin Garnett, Fernando Alonso, Gary Player, Evander Holyfield, Serena Williams, Andre Agassi, Novak Djokovic, Russell Westbrook, Kimi Raikkonen, Roy McElroy, Dwayne Wade, Drew Brees, Carmelo Anthony, Canelo Alvarez, Chris Paul, James Hart. Those are big names. We're talking about NBA players that have these $40, $50 million a year contracts. We're talking about golfers that are making tens of millions of dollars a year on the course, but also off the course in sponsorships. Formula One drivers. Some of these guys are getting paid $30, $40, $50 million a year to drive the car, not including sponsorships. And we're talking about a fighter, right? The most impressive part about this entire story to me is that you have a short career as an MMA fighter, typically. And Conor kind of did, right? Like the last six years, he's literally won one fight. You would argue that he shouldn't be relevant, whether it's illegal stuff, whether it's not winning fights, whether it's being inactive, whether it's getting hurt, it's antics outside, threatening to retire, whatever it is. You could legitimately argue, and I think rightfully so to some degree, that he should not be relevant. But he is, right? It's his personality, and it speaks to who he is as an entertainer. He has broken onto the scene several years ago, and he's maintained that. And not only maintained it, he's gotten stronger. And again, the most impressive part to me is if there's one sport in the world that you should should take the cash in, that you could argue that you could argue, hey, maybe it's not a bad deal to take the cash, even if you have this huge audience, even if you can partner with good entrepreneurs, whatever it is. If there's one sport, it's the UFC and MMA. And that's because your career can be very, very, very short lived. Literally one fight, one punch, one second can end your career. And kudos to Conor McGregor for saying, screw that. I don't care. I'm bigger than this sport. I'm bigger than all of that. I have this massive audience that I can build products and get enterprise value in these things and equity value and make hundreds of millions of dollars instead of pennies on the dollar. So that's exactly what he's done. I count uh, six businesses that he started. There's probably more. He has a big production business now, too. They did just release a new documentary called McGregor Forever on Netflix. They obviously did Notorious. They've done four or five other ones since then. This guy literally films everything, and it is super, super, super impressive. I think it's probably one of the you know most popular playbooks today. Everyone looks at athletes and they say, you know, who doesn't have a alcohol? You got LeBron James with Lobos. You got you know Logan Paul and KSI with Prime. It's a cool thing to do is to partner with entrepreneurs, let them run the business, use your distribution name, image, and likeness to build equity value in something, and eventually cash out. But I would argue that Conor McGregor has done the blueprint on this. He's been doing it for several years at a time, and again, it's even more impressive considering the sport that he competes in. All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, SoFi. Now, some of you probably already know who SoFi is. They sponsor the Rams and the Chargers Stadium out in LA. It's an amazing stadium. I was able to go there for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. If anyone has the chance to go, please go. But more importantly, I've been using them for several years because it's the only app that I found that lets you bank, borrow, invest, and save all in one place. It is incredibly helpful to have all of that in one place. They call it a finance super app. And I love it. I've been using it for several years now, and they're legit. They comply with all the regulatory standards that you would need from the FDIC so you can be- make sure that your money is safe. So Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to download the SoFi app today. Again, that's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to download the SoFi app. All right, everyone, welcome back. Like I said before, the second part of this episode is really special. I have an episode that I recorded previously, an interview with Audi Attar. He's the founder and CEO at Paradigm Sports Management. He represents a number of MMA fighters and a number of soccer players. I think they probably have over 50 clients at this point. They have a number of different agents working at the firm, and they've negotiated close to a billion dollars in contracts. His most famous client, obviously, of course, is Conor McGregor. So I sit down with him and we talk about a whole host of things how he got started in the business, his college football days at UCLA. We talk about founding the firm, why he started in the NFL and then moved to the MMA, where he sees the space going long term. I talk about Connor, meeting him, how they initially signed the deal. We talk about the whiskey business, other products that they've started. We talk about the future of the UFC, the Francis Ngannou's new deal with the PFL. You get the point. We talk about a bunch of stuff. It was a wide ranging conversation and super casual. I think you guys are going to love it. So Take a listen. Let me know what you think. Shoot me a DM on Twitter or a message and make sure to share this episode with your friends. Let's get right into it. All right, Audie. I'm pumped to have you on the podcast today. First off, thank you so much for doing it. And second off, how are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Of course. All right. So I explained a little bit in the intro kind of like who you are and what you do today, but let's talk about your background specifically, right? Like you run Paradigm Sports Management. You guys represent UFC clients, soccer clients. You have a content studio and all these other parts of the business. But how do you get into this like what is your background and your start into the business
1: well obviously uh it's been a long journey it's been 12 plus years now since i, I launched and founded paradigm so it's been quite the ride but i've been in the business for over 20 years and prior to that I was, a, I was a young athlete i played college football and back when i was playing it was the jerry Maguire era right that movie had come out and you know that movie was so famous i was called at the time a recruit magnet right we were the number one recruiting class in the country coming out of high school my senior year in high school going to UCLA. And, you know, at that time it was just me trying to recruit other top prospects to come join me so we could win a championship. Right. And so that was my intent and why I did that. But then from there, my coaches would always then place me as the host, if you will, for the top recruits that would be coming in year in, year out for the program. And people started just planting seeds in my in my head, hey, you're going to be an agent. You're going to be an agent. I'm like, you know, now nah, nah, I'm going to play, right? Cause I think I was just really focused on what I was doing at the time. And, you know, as my career had come to an end, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, a big time NFL prospect. And so if I wanted to keep playing, I was going to have to go play in Canada or try to pursue the game. But my dad was really big on trying to plant seeds in my head, too. He said, you know, you got to use your brain. You got to use your brain. And uh, I want you to go to graduate school. And I had a job offer come from an NFL agency. And so, it was at that point in time that I think everything, all the influences in my life and all my experiences led me to realize I love this game. And even in the locker room, I was a leader, you know, and so I always would advocate for different things for us, whether it's more training table time or even getting food for our, our walk-ons or, you know, things that I just thought were, were the right thing to do. It really led me to, to realize that, hey, all these things, including my dad, was right. It was time for me to use my brain and not my brawn. and I could stay in the sport that I love. I could stay in sports. I could continue to be an advocate and rather than just continuing to go and play, I could pursue a professional career in in sports. And you know, it was difficult because if the competitor in me wanted to keep playing, so there was a side of me that was saying, ah, you whip, you do You know, all the things that you, you know, that a competitor, uh, says to themselves, you know, in terms of psyching themselves up. But the another side of me was saying, Hey. This is an opportunity. This is where you could be the voice for for people like you, for the brotherhood and and the relationships that are built within the locker room, and and be an advocate for athletes. So it was at that point in time that I decided to pursue my career. So kind of there was a lot more than just me loving sports and wanting to get into it, if you will. Kind of it was part of my own experience.
0: Yeah, I I give you a lot of credit because I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but I thought I wanted to be a sports agent at first, right? And I think what everyone learns out when they have that dream initially is how freaking hard it is. It's just really, really, really difficult, especially at the big sports, right? Like the NFL, NBA, that kind of league. It's really competitive. You have to be at a big agency. You almost have to have someone kind of take you under their wing. And that's why I'm so fascinated with your story because you represent people in the big leagues, but your most well-known client is probably Conor McGregor, I imagine, And the UFC and specifically MMA wasn't nearly as well known a decade ago as it is today. So talk me through like how you go from graduating from a college football player, working for an NFL agency to representing the biggest, you know, MMA star in the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, and my journey wasn't the path that everybody has, you know, it was, I started for a startup, you know, and we had no clients in the NFL and we were able to not only sign a top 20 pick, And I ended up signing a lot of my former teammates every round from the third round to seventh round to an undrafted free agent. But I was very fortunate because, you know, these phenomenal athletes and human beings wanted someone that actually believed in them more than just wanting to make money off them. Right. They wanted someone that was going to shoot them straight and really help them try to maximize their career Um, because it's not for long at the end of the day. Right. People always try to say the NFL acronym stands for as it relates to an athlete's career. So I was very fortunate to have some success as a startup, but I wasn't necessarily realizing the success. You know, when you're a young kid coming out of college and you're not the lawyer and you're not the certified agent and you're, you're considered a, a runner, if you will, but you're doing all the work You're not only getting, you know, bringing all the relationships, you're doing all the research, you're preparing all the collateral and, and pitch material, you're preparing for contract negotiations, you're doing all the marketing deals. You know, you're cutting your teeth. And so I wouldn't have had it any other way. And from there, I went and joined, you know, a bigger firm that had been around and had a lot of success, but still wasn't necessarily brought under someone's wing like I had hoped I was going to be. And, And it was at that point in time, just spending years there, realizing that this wasn't for me. I had a paradigm shift. You know, I realized that there was a lot more that I felt that the business should be doing for athletes. I felt that business also should have looked out for their own team. You know, I remember I pitched a business venture opportunity for some of the retired clients that were amazing, Hall of Famers, that, that would have been a win-win all around. And it was, you know, fell on deaf ears. And and I pitched me going to graduate school. What
0: do you mean by that? The agency just didn't want to be
1: involved in it? It just, you know, I think at the time the agency wanted to, as I was told, let's stay in our lane. And as opposed to realizing that there's a way to continue to drive business for clients that are, yes, they're retired, but they they still had strong brand equity and IP that you could leverage and build business ventures with, which in turn is great for the athletes and, in, and the agency alike. So I think that to me that that was a huge, hugely missed opportunity. Um, and then going back to graduate school, I wanted to go to graduate school and it was, a you know, an opportunity for me to grow and, you know, obviously Stay with the firm for a long period of time and it would have been a full tax write off. And that was also, you know, essentially, I was denied that. And it, it was at that point in time that I was like, you know what? This is the, the, the philosophically, we don't align. I needed to go on and, and do my own thing. So it wasn't like I was just going to try to learn and go and, and turn my back on someone. That's not the way I think. I'm a team player. And more importantly, you know, I was, I was yearning for someone to take me under their way. I was yearning to grow and contribute. And sometimes, you, you know, that path could either demoralize you and cause you to quit or motivate you. And, you know, did the, it did the latter for me. What's it like
0: starting an agency? I imagine this is kind of like a loaded question, but I bet if you look back now, you know, whatever, 15 years ago when you started it, you were probably almost like dumb to the fact of how much work it actually took to do. Is that accurate? And like, talk me through a little bit of kind of like what you didn't expect.
1: Totally dumb and just, <laughs> just like you know, balls of steel, you know, and, yeah. and like you're not afraid of anything. And it's like as you get older and you have kids and all this stuff, you start to be like, oh shit, I can't believe I survived that, right? And so to me, you know, it was one of those things that I. It's funny because I, I got into business school on my own and I launched the firm in business school. So I was doing a fully employed MBA program, so going to school at night, working during the day. And I remember they had a satellite, uh, I went to Pepperdine University for my MBA, and they had a satellite campus in Irvine, and it was in the Ernst & Young building. So this is high rise, you know, they had a yep. whole floor, and they would have these conference rooms that you could rent out. So those were my first offices when I first launched the business, and I remember I would have some meetings there, and people would show up, Ernst & Young building, they come to the floor, but they when they get off the floor, it's a big Pepperdine University sign, but but then there's no offices. So they they couldn't figure out what was going on, and it was great. It was scary. It but it was hard, you know. I'm, I and my wife now was my girlfriend, and she had a job, and I didn't, you know. And and we were we were engaged, and I just remember we were maxing out credit cards and and just trying to make it work. And there's a couple clients that come with me that you know were really practice squad guys that you know undrafted free agent practice squad guys. So you're hoping they make, and then you're constantly yep. recruiting and. And it was at that point in time too where I started to develop the thesis of wanted to change lives in industry sport, and I wanted to focus on high growth sports, be best in class from from a management perspective because there's the underserved, there's not as much advocacy there, and and I felt that I could make a difference, you know, um, and then from there build you know IP and build content from that IP, and from that build business ventures, right, and and so it was a, an amazing 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 ride. And I'm glad I survived. And I got lucky several times too, as well. So I'll, I'll take that luck any, any time I could get it.
0: Oh, hundred uh, percent. Everyone gets lucky with that successfully. You know, how big is the agency today? Like in terms of number of clients, agents, contracts negotiated?
1: Yeah. So we have a staff about 20. We have clients about uh, over 40 clients in all in both sports and MMA and, and soccer. And we have uh, we well, contracts negotiated now. I mean, in my career, we're over half a billion dollars in contracts negotiated. So I'm proud of that, you know, in terms of content, we've now produced content, unscripted content, short form content from a YouTube perspective. And then we just finally got into theatrical, um, you know, Conor McGregor's co-starring with Jake Gyllenhaal and and the remake of Roadhouse. I'm an executive producer on the project with Amazon MGM.
0: Were you a producer on, um, the new Netflix show too, McGregor Forever? Yeah, McGregor forever. I'm I'm an executive producer as well. Yes. Yeah, I was watching it this past week and I saw you in it. I was like, this guy's everywhere. <laughs> Every other, <laughs> you're in uh, you're in freaking Dubai. You were with them in uh, in California. I imagine that that's kind of like a, a high touch responsibility managing someone like that, right? Like, there's a lot of different things that go into it. It's been an amazing journey. Connor's
1: obviously not just a client, but he's he's my business partner, and and we've been together for a decade. And so here's a here's a kid born in Baghdad, Iraq, and a, and a kid born in Dublin, 12 Ireland that both had crazy dreams and believed in, in themselves and believed in each other. And, and it's been quite the journey. He's such an outlier. He's such a, you know, people don't realize how special he is, not only how special he is as an athlete, but how special he is as a businessman and just as a human being, he has these, you know, unicorn qualities that you just, I'm very lucky and fortunate to have the opportunity to have have worked with them and partner with them. And, and that he believed in me and, and more importantly, what we built. And I'm just really proud of it.
0: Yeah. How, how did you, how did you sign him?
1: So, you know, I started to really make my name in the business by, so I work, I was doing for guys like Chris Lytle, who's a legend in the UFC. And, and then Mike Michael Bisping, who is really a pioneer of European MMA. And when Connor first signed to the UFC, someone had told me about him. So I did some scouting on him. And, and then I got an introduction to him and John Cavanaugh, his coach. And so before he fought for his first fight in the UFC, we had a Skype call. Me, him and John Cavanaugh had a Skype call. And, you know, I did my normal pitch. You know, you do your agency pitch. At that time, all the endemic agencies were were pursuing him and he was a top prospect coming out of the regional circuit in Europe. And, you know, I I just saw something special in him, Not, not only fighting wise before he even fought in the UFC, but you just can't teach the qualitative aspects when you just see him and you're just glued to everything he says, right? And and So he liked what he was hearing. He said, okay, let me get through this first fight and then let's pick back up and start working together. And so he got through the first fight, Marcus Brimage. We got on the phone that next week because we were gearing up to not only start working together, but it was going to be his second fight in the UFC and his U.S. debut against Max Holloway in in, um, Boston, which was also the first UFC event on Fox, which was going to be massive. And that was the first paid deal in, as it relates to rights fees, right in the sport, which is, as you know, is the major economic driver for any any of these major sports, professional sports properties. So, it's uh, it was great. It was
0: just, uh, and that was the
1: rest has been history.
0: It almost feels like you know, obviously, people change. They get families, they get money, they get all these different things. But I remember watching the first documentary. I forget what it was. I think it was called Notorious, right? On I think it was Netflix or Amazon or somewhere. That was actually
1: I think our third documentary.
0: Yeah. Was it really? Yes. Oh, shit. Yeah. And and the reason I'm bringing it up is because I was so surprised, one, at how much film he had, you guys had, right, of everything. It was like when he was a kid. It was when he was just starting training. He hadn't even made his debut yet in the UFC. It was everything. And there was one scene that I always tell people about. It was, um, I think he had just won his first US fight or the first UFC fight. And he was sitting in his mom's house. And he's sitting in the bathroom doing an interview on an iPad. And he's just sitting on the toilet. He's got these sunglasses on. And he's just screaming, I'm the best in the world. I'm going to kill everyone. I'm amazing, all this stuff. And like, I always joke that some people say that. And you're like, ah, yeah, whatever, everyone says that. But I really, like when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, this guy legitimately believes that he is the best fighter in the world. And he hadn't done shit at that point, right? Like, He was new in the sport. He hadn't accomplished anything. And then you fast forward however many years now, and it's absolutely no surprise to me how successful he's actually been.
1: Yeah, he's he's like, you know, first and foremost, I think his mental fortitude and mindset is what I think everybody, you know, uh, loves, right? And we all are it's 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 aspirational, right? It's like we all need to have that mindset in our own efforts, right? And that's the one thing I think that's very powerful about Connor is that people really are glued to his energy, right? And that energy comes comes through you through the screen even. Now you don't even have to meet him in person, right? I I always like to tell a story. I had a friend, he was doing physical therapy for for an injury years ago in LA and um, I had a friend that I went to UCLA with that was at the same same physical therapy, but um, this friend was come just coming off like chemotherapy you know had never watched any of connor's fights but has watched all his interviews yeah he came up to me and i hadn't seen him for years and he said this to connor as well he said you know I, i've never seen you fight but i've watched all your interviews and i would watch them before i would do any chemotherapy treatment because it helped mo helped me you know get through all what i was going through when i was like man and connor had a tear to his eye and to me i was like you know that's powerful to hear right that You could actually touch people's lives like that, and I constantly try to remind Connor that because you know at times he's like "Ah, I, you know I don't know if I'm a role model, and you know he said that even in some interviews. I'm sure you heard that in McGregor forever as well, but he is. And at the end of the day, like that, sometimes you're you're blessed with this something unique that you just can't explain that touches people's lives, and you have the ability to really make an impact, and so. I, I constantly remind him of that, you know, and and it's a special thing, and I think that that I think we're all special to experience it. And I've been certainly lucky to experience it as my as my client and my my business partner.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I want to touch on is I I think the most prevalent example is obviously your work with McGregor, but I'm sure you're doing it with other people on your roster as well. And you spoke about it a little bit in the beginning of how you wanted to shift how agencies think about business altogether, and. It's the idea of these athlete-driven brands, right, where you're partnering with them and you're going out and you're getting equity in these businesses, and then you're using their distribution and their audience to really drive a inflection point in the business, right? Proper 12 is a good example, McGregor Fast, his clothing company. I'm sure there's a million others that you can probably think of. How like obvious was this, one, in your mind? And then two, how do these deals actually come together? I'm imagining a lot of your athletes today all want equity in businesses, and it doesn't always work like that. Like Sometimes it just doesn't make sense mcgregor's on a different level and and i'm curious to hear kind of like how he thinks about some of that stuff too and just your general thoughts on like where this is headed
1: sure you know i think for connor in particular in those deals i think he had just achieved reached the pinnacle of the sport right he 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 achieved something nobody had done he was the first two division champion champ champ as we trademarked in the ufc it had never been done and we finally were about to make the mcgregor mayweather mcgregor fight happen which everybody that against us right and didn't think we were going to pull that off right in terms of our, our first big big let's call it um you know kind of venture that we had architected because it's ip that we were, were co-owners in right and and then you got a huge payday and it was arguably the biggest boxing event in history right from a commercial perspective so you know we then saw that opportunity of saying okay well we were approached by a, a, a whiskey sponsor and Rather than go and doing a sponsorship deal, when I did the research, I was like, look, this is a category of one. It's right for disruption. And it's really, it fits organically and authentically with his lifestyle outside of fighting, right? He likes to have a good time. He likes to go out and celebrate. He likes to party. He toasts a whiskey after every victory. His grandfather would always talk to him. He was a whiskey man. He'd always tell me those stories. So it just felt right. And, you know, I think for us, it was about, okay, let's architect our own Uh, Opportunity here. Let's be owners in this sector. And so, you know, from then on, it was it was just about making sure that we were finding not only you know domain experts that we could kind of build around us as a team to help us increase the probability of success, but then look at okay, what else or aligns organically with him in terms of building ventures. You know, and that was the first and let's call it the McGregor blueprint was exactly what I had envisioned for our agency for for athletes in general but to your point it can't happen for everybody now we're looking at opportunities on a case by case basis i do believe you could build something on a global level but there are also opportunities to build on a regional level because you have this direct to consumer opportunity that the the advent of the internet has created for us, right? So not everybody can build a proper 12 or a title sport
0: or a big venture that's global, you know, in, in its reach or the TAM, if you will, right? I would also argue that you don't even have to be that level to have that level of fame to have massive success, right? Like I even think about my business specifically. I have this, this content platform, right? That has, it touches hundreds of millions of people every single month. And sponsors obviously want access to that, right? So they're willing to pay you a certain capital, right, uh, money to go out and advertise their products. But in a lot of cases, you're actually just better off partnering with entrepreneurs or people that are already running these businesses or starting them, putting them through that distribution, getting yourself equity value in this venture, and then cash turns off of that too, right? It doesn't need to be this massive platform. So even if you're like a, you know an athlete that's only popular in the US or like a subsection of the US, but you have hundreds of thousands of fans and people that care about what you're doing, you can still build a massive business. It may not be the McGregor level, but you're still going to be wildly successful, make plenty of money.
1: Exactly. And something that's going to basically allow you to generate income and revenue once your, your your career is over. And so we're looking at things like that. And, and more importantly, we're starting to also, as a platform, we're looking at building businesses that are accretive to our platform, whether they're in MMA and, and they could benefit, let's say, all fighters, whether it's in the media and content space, whether it's other business ventures within sports, technology, etc., but to your point, too, then there's some athletes that the challenge with that is now everybody's trying to do it. And the challenge with that is sometimes, like, for example, now you see alcohol, alcohol space is super
0: saturated. And, Every celebrity in the world has an alcohol brand.
1: Right. And the agency business deals with attrition, real attrition. And so you have someone else coming in there and telling the athlete, oh, I could do this for you. And then they go and try something and it fails. Right. And they have to go through that experience themselves. And hopefully they're, they're, they're wise enough to see that, hey, this is real. This is not. Because to your point, not every athlete can do that. and Not every athlete necessarily has the brand equity or the ability to go and leverage their own name, image, likeness, and or platform, if you will, to go and get, hey, Joe, I I want to come and, and get a piece of, of this new startup or early stage startup that you're a part of, but I'll give you my platform to leverage you that you may say, well, that doesn't fit. It doesn't align with what we're doing for whatever reason. So I think the point of it is though, you have to keep trying. And then, and it's one of those things that, yeah. you know, you, you'll get the superstars and, and the outliers, but you, you could get successful wins even with the regional players. And then some of them, you're not going to be able to get that. And you have to be honest with them. And you hope that they focus on their craft because ultimately as an athlete, you got to focus on your craft and hope for us as an agency is not just building these opportunities, but it's career management. It's guiding them through their career to make sure that they're focused on what they have to do to build brand equity, which includes you know, winning, which includes constantly making sure that they're building brand equity, whether it's through social, PR, philanthropy, et cetera, right? And then obviously monetizing it through sponsorships and partnerships and hopefully ventures as well as we as we continue to evolve, if you will, and grow together. Right. So that's part of the the evolutionary
0: process for an athlete and how to get there. I I always thought that you guys did three things really well when it came to proper 12 and McGregor one. The first wasn't really a huge concern because we've seen, right, he's gotten hurt, he's lost a couple fights, but at the end of the day, he stayed extremely relevant. And I think that speaks to his personality, who he is, and like people look up to him and they follow him regardless, win, loss, whatever it is. So I think that's one. But two, uh, it's really on brand, what you mentioned earlier, right? Like Irish whiskey, perfect. He now owns the, what is it called? The Black Forge gin right? Like it's just perfect on brand for who he is and what he does. And then three, and probably the most important was you see a lot of times people aren't fully bought in and he was fully bought in. If I always say that people ask me all the time, like what percentage ownership does freaking Logan Paul own in Prime? What does Connor own in Proper 12? What does LeBron own in Lobos? And I always tell them that you can tell how much they own, not like the exact number, but a percentage wise based on how much they're actually promoting the product. And Connor, he was posting anyone that posted it on Instagram, he was reposting them. LeBron does the same thing. Logan Paul and KSI, they're flying to Australia to launch new products. Like, those people own meaningful parts of this business, and they're willing to put in the time and the effort because they know if it works, they're going to get paid a lot of money, right? And I think when you think about Proper 12, those three things combined, it was an absolute home run.
1: Yes, I agree. And I think one of the things I think I'm proud of is when we were doing it, there wasn't any athletes in, in the venture space, right? And it took a lot of faith in, in from Connor to to realize I'm not getting a check. I'm not getting paid for these. It's not like how many posts, how many appearances, how many you got to lean in. And you know, I think one of the things and it's you know also bringing on domain experts and credit to to like our partner Ken Austin who is phenomenal. Like it's about leaning in, right? It's about making sure that you understand that hey, you may not be getting, you know, a check right now present day, but what you're doing is is you're building equity. That's going to pay off. And and at the end of the day, there is light at the end of the tunnel, particularly when you start to see the velocity of sales and you start to see distribution pick up and, and and all the other metrics that we would look at from a, you know, let's call it a CPG perspective, if you will. Right. So yeah, Ken is, is I would call him the goat in spirit. Ken
0: Austin did Avion too or no?
1: A- Avion, he then proper, and now he did Terramana, and Now he done DeLola with J Lo. Yeah, you know, as as I'm building this team, it's it was important to make sure we get the black belt on our team from an operational perspective, and and that that was a at the time it was just Avion under his belt, and but nonetheless, you know, he was a, a serial entrepreneur as well, had had major success in other ventures as well. So he's been yeah. an amazing partner and a brother of mine, and and someone that that you know to be in the saddle with him and. And you know it's it's hand to hand combat every day. You know building businesses is like everybody from the outside looking in just thinks, oh yeah, okay, well that's 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 the model. I'm gonna go do that. Okay, well let's see you execute. You know because that's a whole other whole nother whole nother ball game, right? It's one of those things where no matter what venture we're in, we try to build substantive brands with domain experts in those sectors you know we're having the same success now with our pain relief brand Title Sport you know we we have distribution now in Target and CVS Rite Aid GNC Walmart um, it's vitamin shop I mean it's crushing it and it's a you know we're going after that pain relief se- sector and and it's again organic because this is from an efficacy perspective we feel we created a great brand and product something that crushes the competition And Connor uses it pre-training, post-training. And now we're having our other athletes use it. And so, like, you know, it's one of those things that aligns organically. But our domain experts, our our co-founder, CEO, Bottle he's he's amazing. He's an amazing entrepreneur that knows how to build global businesses. And so now it's not only distributed here. We're in Australia. We're launching in India. We are in South America. We're in Europe. And so it's one of those things that, for me, It's, you know, our model is working. And so we got to just continue to build on that with all our ventures.
0: I love that. And I think the most impressive part, lastly, is that UFC is a sport where your career could end like that, right? Like it could just be over. So it's even more impressive that you guys and and Connor too had the ability to think long term and think about equity value versus just checks and sponsorships and stuff like that. But one of the things I want to talk about too is negotiating the fight with Mayweather. Be honest. Did you think that was going to happen when you first started bringing it up? I mean, look, no, because (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think so, (laughs) because like, I I mean, I remember
1: even Dana at the time was like, I said publicly, something to the extent that he'd be like the starting quarterback of the New England Patriots before that fight happens or something like that. So odds were against us, right? You know, I think going back to even your earlier question, like you just don't think about that. You don't think about how scary and then why the nose you think of, uh,
0: how do I get it done? Right. Yeah. It's immediately like, how do I create a win win for the UFC, for Conor, for Floyd, for everyone involved to where it's a no brainer to get this deal done? That's the one thing
1: I'd I'd say. And, you know, Conor and I are very much alike in this way of thinking. It's like we wouldn't have got to where we are in our lives if we allowed everybody to tell us, you know, their opinion, which would be opposite of our goals, was going to be the reality just doesn't make sense. And I think this goes, I'm sure Joe, you could relate to this. It's like, you know, when you have a vision, you gotta find a way to make it happen. And sometimes yeah. it's being creative and sometimes it's not always just going through it. You know, sometimes you have to, you know, masterly or artistically go around it. Or sometimes you have to go over it. you know what I mean? So like for us it was uh it was a great great win but i think the data showed that it could be a win all around and credit to dana and the ufc for seeing that too because ultimately it was like okay this makes business sense right not necessarily ufc related but from a business perspective and they're great partners and we we did great business and it wasn't easy and and i know you know behind closed doors it was definitely tense at times but more importantly i think it was it was a huge success for all parties involved and um, and I'm proud of that. And, and I, I remember, you know, even when we, when they finally came around, I mean, me and Connor had a meet with them and when things were being said in the meeting, we would just look at each other and we were making, we were talking with our eyes. Right. Cause at the end of the day, it was like, yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah. So it was good, man. And proud of that. Now that that's a trend too. You know, you see all these, you know, big crossover fights and
0: exhibitions and all that kind of stuff. Well, look what, look what happened with, uh, Francis, right? Like he wanted, you know, he, I think he wanted a bunch of other stuff too, ultimately, but the ability to do what Connor did and what you guys did was a big part of it, I think. And he saw, and other athletes have seen kind of the big payday that came out of that, or at least, you know, heard numbers and they want something right. I wouldn't say the UFC would be opposed to doing that again, though. You know, I think it's
1: all about, I think it's about approach and really you know, data. Do you think he made a mistake in his approach to do it? Honestly, I can't speak on on Francis's situation because there's probably so many more details that I'm unaware of. I've heard little things here and there. So I don't think it's solely on, let's call it a boxing event. I think it had a lot more to do with with why that didn't materialize.
0: I've had Francis on the podcast a couple times. He listed fifty things that he wanted from the UFC in order to get the deal done. And I love Francis. Francis right? is a great yeah.
1: He's a great athlete, great guy. And and honestly, I, I I'm
0: if he's happy, I, I hope I'm happy for him. He believes in what he believes and he doesn't want to change that for anyone. So it's no surprise that like if the UFC wasn't willing to do certain things and he wanted them, that ultimately he was going to look elsewhere. But I I guess my question to you would be like, what is the current state of the UFC? Like what is your belief in where it's headed, especially for athletes that you represent and kind of the sport as a whole?
1: Well, I think there's, you know, two parts to that question. Current state of the UFC, current state of the sport. I think they're both looking great, right? I think there's growth in overall arching, you know, Mixed martial arts, TAM, the total adjustable market, continues to grow. The UFC is certainly the catalyst for that growth. You can't deny that, right? And that is continuing to grow just by every metric you look at, whether it's viewership on, let's call it linear TV. You look at pay-per-views, pay-per-views on average, they're going up, you know, which is actually a good thing. You know, you don't necessarily have as many outlier pay-per-view stars like Conor McGregor, but the average is growing, which I think just shows you that the overall interest in the UFC is growing, but then the sport is growing. So you have other promotions like PFL, like Bellator that are constantly, uh, you know, showing growth in different ways, whether it's signing fighters from a free agency perspective and thus increasing the, the, you know, fighter compensation. Uh, metric, if you will. Um, I think on average, that still needs to grow. I'm proud for, for how far it's grown in the last 10 years that, that we've been involved in the business, but I do still think it needs to continue to grow. And there's a lot more opportunity to provide and, and create more, uh, you know, let's call it benefits and other interests that the fighters should have as active fighters and as retired fighters as well. And So those are some of the things that I think for me at this stage too. It's important to think about, right, not only for our clients, but for the for the sport in general. And something that I know, you know, Connor and I've been discussing as well. And so there's a lot of amazing things on the horizon for the sport. You know, Connor, as you, you, you know, as you pointed out, like he doesn't have to fight ever again, but he wants to compete. And that's the thing about him that makes him special. But I think that people should really appreciate is that you know, it doesn't matter what happens, you know, what's happened in the past. He gets back up, dusts himself off and he goes again. Like he, he does not, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what you think. He tries to prove himself right. And I think that's admirable. That's something that, you know, people don't realize it's like, Oh, well, as if we don't take L's in our lives every day, we do, but we have to keep going. That's the most important thing. And I think, uh, um, so, so that, so the state of the sport is in great shape and I'm mean, state of the UFC is in great shape and, and I'm honored
0: and excited to be a part of it. Do you think fighters would ever form a union? One reason why I ask this is if you look across, this is a very, you know, I didn't come up with this. This is very popular opinion and, and something people actively talk about. If you look at all the other major sports leagues in the United States, the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, essentially it's a couple percentage points each way but they all split revenue basically 50-50 with the players and the league and the owners right. right and the UFC is is not there i think the last report was like under 20% of overall revenue from the public numbers were sent that were spent on fighters so there's a you know there's a big difference there dana would argue there's you know things that go into that that people don't understand whatever but the big difference in my mind is that there's no union right if you're in those leagues in the NFL the NBA the MLB you have a players' union that's negotiating new collective bargaining agreements, CBAs, every few years, and they're trying to get things right. They're saying there's going to be a lockout if you guys don't give us you know, more pay, if you don't give us higher benefits, if you don't give us retirement funds, whatever it is. And the UFC and, and MMA doesn't have that today. Is that something that you think is a possibility, or do you think there's another avenue to get what fighters
1: want? Look, I think you're right in terms of fighter compensation you know it's it's nowhere near the the stick and ball sports if you will right as, as you pointed out it's 50 50 plus percent in most of those mature you know sport professional sports leagues if you will and, and i think you you know as you point out under under 20 that's come a long way from where when i first started. i think it was it was like it was under 10 percent, right um but it's still it's still a ways to go and i don't disagree with you on that i think from a unionization perspective there's been a few of them that have that have tried and failed. And I think that even they had tried at the same time. So it's almost like it was a fragmented effort. And I question then the, the motive behind that. It's like, okay, you have these two failed unionization efforts that, that ran concurrently at the same time. So it's like almost a split votes, if you will. And it's like, well, what is their motive, right? And so sometimes I question that and, and you know, quite, quite frankly, like, do I think that there has to be a solution? Yes. Do I think that there are still problems that exist for fighters? Absolutely, and I do think that we're thinking through some things as we speak. You know, we have been very fortunate in the success that we've had, right? And so there's, you know, we have resources, and we're trying to think of things that are totally in the in the best interest of the fighters, right? And and something that we could create, uh, you know, some solutions for some of these problems that exist, right? I think that that's something that's important to us, and not just for me and, and Paradigm Sports, but for Connor as well, I know it's important to him and it's important for all fighters and they all go about it in their own way, right? But there has not necessarily been that aha moment, but I do think that we are working on something pretty special now that I just
0: can't necessarily go into. We'll have to do another one whenever it gets announced and we'll talk to the details. Yeah, yeah,
1: yes, yes, yes. Yes, but I, but I certainly think that, you know, you need people that, that are advocating and, and they have to go about it the right way. And, and look, at the end of the day, promoters, whether it's UFC, Bellator, PFL, they all will say what 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 they want to say. I do think to some extent they all care, but they all care about the shield more as well. So there's a way of trying to figure out, well, how do you get everybody to the table? And, you know, because I think there is a common denominator. And so if everybody truly does care about the fighters, there's a way of architecting and creating a solution whereby the shield can honor the shield fighters can honor the fighters but at the end of the day business continues to grow because we shouldn't stop it it's growing at a very fast pace and and why would we want to stop it because i think everybody benefits in it if the show continues and goes on
0: yeah the other thing i want to talk about is the ultimate fighter obviously uh, connor is one of the coaches this year across from michael chandler one of the interesting things is like, I'm sure you've heard it by now, Formula One and the growth of the sport from the Netflix series and, and other sports leagues are trying to do this now too, where they're taking basically real time unscripted content and they're putting it on a series and they're trying to grow the sport that way. But I always joke to people that like the UFC was really the one that started this. If you think about the Ultimate Fighter, this was over a decade ago, I imagine now, and no one wanted the show. Right? you got D- Dana had to convince people to go take the show they bet on themselves it eventually was successful and it showed like a different side of the fighters and now it's this ultimate you know uh, very successful franchise and, and Connor's going to be on it this year what should we expect from the ultimate fighter this year
1: listen the UFC Dana Lorenzo fattita um, they bet on themselves it was at a time where they were paying to be on TV they were paying to be on Spike. Spike got Spike was blessed with, with that content and that idea that not only I think made that channel but it also you know was the you know in my opinion the the true catalyst for the UFC because it allowed people to to build fandom and get behind these fighters and then watch them perform in an amazing competition as athletes and so I think that they were pioneers to some in some respects as it relates to you know unscripted sports series if you will and you know the guys at box to box who produced Drive to survive. They also produce, I think they have Netflix's three top sports projects, Full Swing and Breakpoint. You know, I'm I'm doing some business with, with those guys as well. And and um they're they're phenomenal. And so, you know, but that, that builds fandom. You see, now F1 was irrelevant in
0: the US before that show. Like nobody cared about F1. They literally gave the the broadcasting rights away for free to ESPN. <laughs> they yeah. literally couldn't get anyone to pay for it.
1: Yeah. And now it's like you can't even get a ticket. I mean, it's yeah. like the price for a ticket. You want to go to Austin or Miami, and then soon to soon to come Vegas. It's astronomical what you have to pay just to go to that. So, but yeah. I think it's kind of how we're wired. I think we have to somehow find something that allows us to to be drawn to the sport, and then we appreciate
0: it more. But why why does Connor do
1: it? Well, so I think for for us, the ultimate fighter to me, you know, and this is one of the things that Connor thought through is like this is the original show that helped bring the UFC into the forefront of the sports, sports enthusiast or sports consumer's mind, right? And this was going to be an opportunity to not only be a star in the show, but the show was going to be, for the first time, be aired on ESPN. And that's also a major opportunity. So you're taking yeah. this this original concept and you're bringing it to the mass consumer and mass Sports enthusiast audience on ESPN. This is not ESPN2, ESPN Two, ESPN Plus. You know, it, it, it's not Spike. You know, it's it is the biggest sports platform and channel in America and, the, and arguably in the world. Right. And So, you know, for us, that was an amazing, amazing chance to say, right, okay, this is a great platform. This is something we want to be a part of. Connor is never. He's never hid the fact that he loves UFC. He has a lot of love and respect for you Nelly know, Dana, Lorenzo Fatida And, you know, at the end of the day, he too was a fan before he was a fighter, right? And so uh, why not be able to be part of such a great, you know, legacy? He was, he was also a coach previously, if you remember when the show was uh, him versus uh, Uriah, right? Uh, Uriah Faber. So he's had some experience with that. And Michael Chandler is a game opponent. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, Connor wanted to fight him as well from a competition perspective. And so this is a great opportunity to have yep. the two elite fighters, coach teams, bring back an original title and the ultimate fighter, be continue to be part of that legacy, but then raise it to another level by having it be be
0: aired on on ESPN. So it was it just made all the sense in the world. Nice. I got two more questions for you. First off, long term goal for Paradigm. What are any new business offerings, new sports are going to be going into? Like, where do you see the business, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now? I
1: think for us, it's continuing to scale our platform, right? It's continuing to be best in class from a management perspective, high growth sports. We'll probably enter into uh, another high growth sports, but we're going to grow the ones that we're in in MMA and soccer build our continue to build out our studio right both unscripted and scripted really you know not only with our athletes but then just our ecosystem within the, the sports and entertainment world uh and then continue to to scale our our existing business ventures and grow those but but also launch new business ventures that we're excited about that are accretive to our to our platform whether they're aligned with our athletes or they're they're just uh, accretive to what we do in the sports and entertainment world so we're really exciting and and more importantly, create solutions, create solutions to problems that exist in the businesses that we operate in. And, and, and for those athletes that not only that we represent, but that we, we we want to support in different ways.
0: Yeah. Last question. What's the craziest thing a client's ever asked you to do? I don't know if I can <laughs> tell you on this show. <laughs> yes. The one you just thought of is the one I want to hear. <laughs> the one oh, that you rolled man. your eyes I've,
1: at. I've heard, I've heard it all, Joe. But hey, but at every step, I just, and now I experience things that I never thought I'd experienced. And I'm like, Alright, you know, I, well one of the things I'll tell you is, it used to shock me, now I'm able to let things just roll off my shoulders and just flow with it because even even things that, it's just like, you know, you you see the craziest shit, you can't let it get you jaded. That's the one thing I keep reminding myself, man, be the change you want to see and don't let, don't let things get you jaded because yeah. at the end of the day, I'm not perfect either and I can use the growth and, I'm, and, I, and I welcome it. So bring it on. I
0: love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for doing this audio. I appreciate it. I'm uh, a huge fan of what you guys are doing at Paradigm and all the success you've had. So keep it up. And I'm sure we'll be talking at some point in the future when you guys undoubtedly do more impressive things in the business world. Thanks, Joe. And in 15 years,
1: we'll be talking again. That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> I love it. Cheers.